welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. Been a pretty rainy week here in Iowa, so I haven't been able to do much shooting. Plus, got some family in town here from overseas from England. So, it's been a, a nice memorial weekend. I've been able to enjoy family and and uh, definitely represent the red, white, and blue here around the house. But uh, once again, it's time to, uh, I guess, get with it, answer some questions and uh, talk about some important topics that uh, I think you guys might want to hear about. So um, I've had several questions here lately about draw length. Um, I actually posted a little video on YouTube uh, about draw length, and it was actually a clip from a dead center segment that we had on the uh, Knock on TV show. And, you know, I showed on there a way to actually measure draw or how I like to just measure draw for someone for the first time. It gets me in the ballpark. If you're wanting to um, to check that out, go to the Knock On Archery YouTube channel or you could just search YouTube for proper draw length with John Dudley of Knock On and you'll see the you know, two and a half minute video that I did about draw length. And uh, there was a few people that had seen that and uh, made a few comments about, you know, well, it's not perfectly correct. And, uh, you know, there's certain things that it doesn't factor in. And what you'll see is the way that I've uh, measured people for draw is simply by making a fist, um, putting their fist against the wall, standing in a proper T formation having them look towards the wall and then measuring from the wall to the corner of their mouth. Um, The reason that gets you really close is because um, on most people, when you close your fist, the measurement from the inside of the cradle part of your thumb where your bow would sit to the end of your knuckles as they would sit on the wall is about an inch and a half. Um, You know, ATA measures draw length by adding one and three quarter inches from the pivot point of the bow. So this is going to get you within a quarter inch or so of your draw length. Now, depending on the axle to axle length and the string angle of your bow, that might need to be fine tuned. But when it comes to a person going in and getting their draw length set up, you know, especially for the first time correctly to where they're not just taking, you know, someone's quick, um, I guess wingspan measurement or something because I've seen those be, be wrong as well. Um, the other thing is, which I did not mention in that video, is you know there's a pretty big importance to being able to adjust your string loop to actually fine tune your draw length. And this uh, this actually kind of segues me into a question that I had um, from a friend Todd Mitchell who asked. Um, you know, he said he went in to, to get his draw length checked from his local dealer. And, and, you know, he said that he, the dealer recommended him lengthen his draw length. And then he said, well, can I just do that with my D loop 
because the dealer thought that he needed to lengthen himself out a bit to get his front shoulder in the proper position. Um, and then the dealer kind of made the comment, well, you know, it's, I guess he said it's cheating if you do it with the D loop. Well, if the bow isn't actually fitting you correctly, you know, you don't, if you need, if you have to add draw length, and you don't have enough with your bow, you can't put a super huge loop on there. Um, any loop up to an inch long is certainly fine by me. Um, the D loop really does allow you to adjust um, your anchor position and still keep your actual string position where it needs to be on your face. Because when your head is in a vertical position, I like the string to be at the front tip of the nose and then come along the corner of the mouth. Now where the string actually stops on the face is going to vary a lot depending on you know, the actual string angle and also how long your draw length is. Um, for example, on my hunting bows, like my Hoyt Spider 34, you know, it's it's a little bit shorter axle to axle than what my target bow is. So the string is going to come to a point or to rest a little bit further back on my face than, say, my Pro Comp Elite XL. Um, now my anchor position, my head position, and where that string actually comes forward and touches the tip of my nose that's going to be the same, but because of that string angle, it may have to come slightly past the corner of my mouth before the string actually stops. So, you know, there's going to be a slight variance there, but for the most part, this way of measuring my draw length, or measuring anyone's draw length, I guess, would be, uh, is going to be the best way to get you in that ballpark. And then, you know, like I said, you can really fine-tune your draw length up to about an inch long or your anchor position, depending on the type of release aid, um, with your D-loop. And, uh, you know, certain release aids have a different um, distance from where that release sits in your knuckles to where the loop actually connects to the jaw or the hook of the release. So some releases are going to um, that have that jaw or hook further from uh, where the release sits in your hand, they're gonna you're gonna be able to shoot a lot shorter D loop than one that sits really close to the hand. Now, personally, I find them a little bit more accurate when the hooks are closer to your hand, um, and that's one of the things that I like about shooting the Carter Two Simple. I like that the the jaw is close to my knuckles. And uh, it also allows me to keep the string, you know, where it needs to be on my face without giving me any type of contact. And then I shoot just a slightly longer D loop than, say, if I was shooting like a Just Cause or an Insatiable, because that that jaws a little bit further from my knuckles. So, you know, I shoot just under a one inch D loop myself. It's about seven eighths of an inch. Um, so once again, you got to get your bow set properly um, so that the angle um, is fitting your face properly and that your posture is aligned properly. But then you fine tune your actual length by um, adjusting that D loop. And I had actually written an article um, for the next edition of Bow International on how to properly measure draw and what to look for. Uh, but I guess someone else had uh, sent in an article on the same subject, which they had already committed to. So, um, mine will get, mine will come out at a later date, although, you know, which I'm not really, 
I guess, super happy about following up somebody on the same subject. But, you know, I guess that how it go, that's how it goes with writing articles. Um, but I will have mine out eventually. So um, sooner or later, it's going to end up on Dudley archery.info website and knockontv.com website um, in the articles tab. But uh, also, you know, one of one of my favorite target magazines to write for is Bow International um, in the UK. I just think they do a really professional job with the publication and, you know, not to mention they don't really hack up my article my articles too much. Uh, you know, some editors really take articles to the chopping block, and by the time they come out, the message is a little bit different than what the author really was tr- where they were trying to go, which maybe for some writers is what needs to happen. But, you know, I think for those of you out there who like my style of writing and explaining, um, you know, you get a pretty authentic, true to the core version when you when you get the Bow International magazine. So you can check them out on their Facebook page if you just look up Bow International. And, uh, you know, you might be able to subscribe to, like, their their e-magazine or have a, a subscription sent to you, really regardless of where you are. I know they do it to several countries. But, uh, you know, I've got a really cool article um, that I actually did instead of that draw-length article for this latest publication and I think it's three essential things to do this summer. And it's a really good article. Um, I think you guys are going to really like that. So keep your eyes out for that as well. Um, the next question I got here is from Robert Martin. And he's asking me if I could talk a little bit about committing to the shot. And, you know, what do people actually mean when they say that? He said everyone talks about it. But no one really explains it. So what is that process? And I guess, um, you know, there's a couple different aspects to this question. You know, one's going to be, I guess, are you referring to committing to the trigger um, or committing to your pull? Um, Because there's a couple things. First off, when I draw back and I anchor... Um, I like to have my trigger set to where it's just stiff enough to where I can get my finger on that trigger and do what I call a preload. And that's build some pressure on that release with my thumb and get my thumb in the position I want it to before it goes off. And also that preload is what allows me to have my my thumb in a fixed position as I start to commit to pulling through. Um, If you shoot a trigger that's too light or if you shoot one that's really stiff, it's sometimes hard to, you know, I guess if you shoot it super light, you, you don't, you can't preload it at all. You just more or less, you know, try to get your finger on it without it going off. But if you have too stiff of a trigger, sometimes it's really hard to know just how much uh, tension you can put on it before you start your pull. So I like to have enough tension on my trigger to where I can get my finger on there. I can move my thumb into the position, and you know if I take a picture of myself, I can see my thumb, my thumb just starting to turn white, 
And once it's in that position, my thumb actually never moves again. It stays in that fixed position. I keep that preload on there. And instead of doing any movement at all with my thumb, I'll only increase that tension on the trigger by by pulling back, you know, focusing on pulling my elbow to something behind me. The other thing with committing to the shot, um, I guess, is going to be um, somewhat in relation to, like, say, shooting in the wind. Um, if you're shooting in the wind, you know, you do need to commit to the trigger. You need to commit to your pull. And regardless of what's happening in the front portion of your body, you know, or what's happening, how much your pin's moving, you kind of have to just say, well, it's not going to be perfectly still. I just need to pull hard and pull through it. And, you know, and by committing, it means that when your pin kind of goes off the target, you don't completely stop your movement. And then when you get your pin back on, start again. Because that that makes it really difficult. Normally what happens, if you're trying to pull on the trigger and you get blown off the target and then you, you know, or if you're moving around even just a little bit, you know, I, I kind of think of, think of it as when I'm shooting in the wind because I really, I'm not worried about having a few little dips and bobbles when I'm aiming on a target normally because it's not very often that I can hold perfectly still and I've I've learned to accept movement um, but the people that stop their movement as soon as their pin moves off the target and then start again and then stop and then start again what you'll find is those people normally once they stop and they get their pin back on the target and then they start to pull again each time they stop the you know stop and then start the pull again a lot of times that front shoulder slowly starts to creep higher and higher and higher or collapse each time they stop and then restart it just naturally you know they try to f- solidify their hold so they kind of compress that shoulder and then they start to pull and that compresses it a little more and then they compress and compress and then what ends up happening is, you know, before you know it, you're 15 seconds into your shot. You've been aiming way too long, and you'll feel like you're putting an extreme amount of pressure on the trigger. Or if you're shooting a hinge release, you'll feel like you've just been pulling and pulling and rotating, but nothing's happening. And that exact thing is why, you know, once again, the Carter Evolution is a great training aid because it teaches you when you are doing that because the people that say, well, I shoot it for a while and, it, you know, some days it feels really good, goes off super easy, and then other days, you know, I swear it just isn't consistent. I pull way, way harder and it doesn't go off. And what that's showing you is your front shoulder is actually compressed. You're feeling the tension, but the tension is in your shoulder blades. It's not actually building tension on the back wall of the cam. Um, you know, you can sometimes, if you video yourself, um, you know, if you if you set up a camera and video yourself right where your arrow sits on your arrow rest, what you can find, you know, put a line on your on your arrow right where it comes, you know, to a stop at your arrow rest and sit there and aim and make shots and you can actually see that 
sometimes when you feel like you're pulling super hard on the cam, you're actually creeping forward even though you feel all that tension. And that tension is coming from your shoulder blades, not from you pulling on the back wall. So by not committing to the shot, you really increase the opportunity for that to happen. So if I'm out shooting and my pin's got a little bit of movement in it, um, pretty much what I do is once I set my finger to that trigger and I start my pull, that movement is continual and I totally commit to pulling through my shot in one motion, just like a recurve shooter would do pulling through a clicker. If by some reason there's an interruption there and I really have to cancel my pull to try to reacquire the target, unless I'm fighting a time clock, that's an absolutely perfect time to let down because, you know, having that fluid, continual movement, you know, just having a flow in your shooting um, is really nice and it really helps your consistency. You know, my shot routine takes anywhere from 10 to 14 seconds. You know, by the time I check my stance and I'm drawing my bow, you know, by the time I by the time I go through my steps, I draw on an anchor, acquire my peep, look through my peep, level my bow, get my peep on the target, get my finger to the trigger, and then start my pull. I mean, that shot is going off within 14 seconds. If I get over that 14-second mark, then for me, I start to lose a lot of my oxygen. Um, you know, I start to lose my crispness in the sight picture that I'm seeing through my scope. So I really think that, uh, you know, committing to that shot and trying to keep that time, um, you know, especially under the 22nd mark for sure, preferably under the 15, I think that you're going to, you're going to find a lot of improvement. So, you know, committing, I guess you can commit to the pressure on your trigger, you know, get a preload on there, keep your finger in a fixed position and then pull with your elbow. That's committing, but also once you start your pull, making that a continual smooth motion is also what we refer to as committing to the shot. You know, this is what people that shoot hinge releases have to do when they're shooting in the wind. You know, you look at some of the best hinge shooter hinge shooters out there right now, you know, Braden Gillantine, uh, Erica Jones, Jamie Van Natta, um, you know, these people shoot, you know, Jesse Broadwater, you know, these people shoot in the wind. And even back when we shot 90 meters, they would shoot, you know, world-class scores with those releases, even in the wind, because, you know, they know, okay, once I decided to, uh, to start pulling on this release, I'm pulling through it. Um, I'm not going to sit here and dilly dally around. I'm going to get my pin on the target. I'm going to pull hard, I'm going to pull smooth, and I'm going to pull continual, and my shots are going to go off a lot quicker probably than if it was calm out. But once again, they're committing to making that happen. Uh, The next question I got here is from uh, Tim Madden, and um, he was saying in podcast number eight, um, I mentioned Hoyt and similar companies using a gradual knock trot, not knock travel or a rise as the bow draws back and he said this makes a lot of sense to me 
um, when using a blade rest. However, how does that affect an arrow on a drop away rest? And to be honest with you, um, you know, this is going back to when I was talking about knock travel um, and how different companies design different types of knock travel. And I said that I really have found that um, I prefer a knock travel that as you draw the bow back, it continues to slightly rise towards the tail end of the draw cycle. And what that does is as the string goes forward, it forces the arrow down onto the arrow rest so that the the arrow actually utilizes that support of the arrow rest as that arrow launches forward. Now that motion that we're talking about, you know, that's a it's a real small rise, at least on the Hoyts that I've seen and I've tested. Um, it normally happens towards the back end of that draw cycle, um, not at the front side of the draw cycle. So a lot of times, you know, with those follow-away arrow rests, you're going to be riding that arrow, you know, it's going to be supporting the arrow, you know, for sure in the front half of that arrow. Um, you know, depending on your timing, sometimes your arrow rest may go down a little bit sooner. But uh, for the most part, you know, it's just going to affect or it's just going to force that arrow onto the rest better during those, you know, first few inches that it's actually doing that. Um, I think that it's going to be a benefit regardless of the type of arrow rest you shoot. Because once again, that's the intention is to force the arrow onto the rest so that the rest can support it repetitively each and every time. You know, even if, say, on a blade rest, you might get a little bit more sustained contact, um, you are going to still get good contact with even a fallaway rest. But what's most important is it really helps assure the same thing every time a repetitive cycle and a repetitive guidance as that arrow is on the rest you know that um, how long that arrow is on that rest can be determined by a ton of different things not just how fast your arrow rest goes up and down you know if your arrow tends to have a lot more flex in it than another arrow then you know it may be kind of leaving the rest sooner anyway depending on how much of a paradox that arrow has so i think you're gonna find that uh with a fallaway arrow rest at least from the testing that i've done the limb driven systems tend to be the most repetitive um, they're the simplest to tune because they don't have the pressure on the on the bus cable or the power cable um, you know i really like the SmackDown Pro that I have. It's a trophy taker. Um, I actually, right here behind me, uh, had a couple trophy takers built up with a smaller launcher and without the full containment guard that I'm going to actually set up on some of my target bows. Um, because these setups that I've had or that I've made with my hunting bows with the limb-driven system are just super, super repetitive. Um, it took me a while to want to get to get used to that Kate that uh, string coming from my rest all the way down to the bottom limb 
Um, it seemed like it was definitely just something else I could snag on something and end up breaking. But to be honest with you, I've taken it through some of the craziest of terrains and I've had uh, no bad luck with it at all. So I think uh, if you're wanting to use a, a drop away aero rest, go with a limb driven system for sure. They're much more competitive and they're a lot easier to tune. You don't have to worry about exactly when that aero rest comes up. Plus it's nice when you're actually setting the bow up for the first time because the aero rest is actually in its up position. So you can adjust your knocking point and your center shot with the rest exactly where it's going to be sitting um, as the bow is fired. And then obviously once you have it in that position, you go ahead and push it down with your thumb onto the riser and pull that cord tight so that the rest is down when the bow is at rest and then as you draw back and the limbs flex that rest then comes up so that's been a, a great system for me um, next question here is from Steve Shirley and uh, he's saying here uh, Dud I shoot an FMJ 340 and a hex 330 both are cut at 29 inches so that's almost similar to what I have my draw length is 30 and a half um, and on his bow he's shooting at 69 pounds said according to the Easton chart he's right on the edge of that 330 or a 300 spine so he said the question is um, should he just drop his poundage on his setup or should he just go to a 300 spine he said he's trying to avoid um, having to change too much since he already has some arrows that he's invested in um, you're pretty much in the exact same position as what I am. Um, unfortunately, in some arrows, Easton is not making a spine stiffer than a 330. Um, and I guess I'll just urge you, if you're a 300 or stiffer spine shooter, make sure you voice your complaint because, you know, I really want to see more of these arrows available in the stiffer spines. The reason they're not is simply because a lot of these dealers um, are really not wanting to have those extra, the extra inventory in there. Um, it's just easier to say, you know, hey, you either need a 340 or a 400 spine. Uh, they kind of have two sizes. They can get people in and out. But the reality is almost anybody that's shooting a full 70 pounds over probably well for sure over 30 and a half inches of draw they are going to need a 300 spine even if you're a 29 or 30 inch shooter if you're going to shoot the heavy brass inserts that i've been talking about um, which i think is critical to increasing your foc and having an arrow that flies really good as well as boosting your overall arrow weight for penetration um you know that that higher spine or stiffer spine is going to be really really important for us to still have available um, what I did with my bow because I really like how the 330 hex shot um, I had to shoot that at about 67 pounds for my bow I couldn't shoot it at 70 pounds because the arrow was too weak so if you've got some arrows already just back your poundage down uh, a couple pounds uh, since you're at 69 pounds now, I'm willing to bet if you take that down to 67 pounds, you're going to be just fine. Um, you know, don't really worry about 
you know, those few pounds if you're ever right on the line because, you know, ultimately an arrow that flies and groups the best is going to definitely have a bigger advantage to you than an arrow that might have a little bit more speed or, or one that's, you know, possibly too stiff rather than too weak. Um, I didn't seem to have any penetration problems at 67 pounds versus 70. So go ahead and give that a try, and uh, hopefully that'll work out for you. Um, my next question here is um, from a guy that wrote in. Uh, I'm not going to say his last name just because, uh, you know, I kind of opened up here and asked some questions as well as kind of spilled his guts a little bit. So um, anyway, Patrick asked a question that I think is important for me to talk about and let everyone listen to. And uh, he said, my question is, did you or do you have any suggestions on what to do mentally to keep the wheels on when you're having a bad day? Uh, He said, over the weekend, I was not judging well, I wasn't executing well, and I wasn't even mentally positive today. Um, I tried to make the best of it, but even when I felt confident in his number, he was shooting 3D. Um, He said it would take an extra long time to get his shot off, um, or it would take him a long time to actually get confidence in his yardage. And uh, he said he came home and went over his bow because he shot bad, and he said everything was just fine. Um, So he said, uh, I tried to get the right mentality um, so I could bring it back to the center during the tournament, but he couldn't. So this is a pretty critical lesson for everybody out there. And uh, unfortunately for most of us, it's something that you have to learn the hard way, um, or at least I did. You know, and I got to give credit to Tim Strickland for helping me deal with this exact thing. Because early on in my career, um, you know, I guess my background as a competitor and in sport was as a football player. So um, if I had anything that was upsetting me, um, you know, if, if I threw a bad pass or if we were having a bad time, um, it wasn't very hard for me to, you know, to call a tight end reverse so that I could uh, pull a lead block and get to smash somebody uh, to release some frustration and kind of move on. But uh, And then when I moved into archery as an early competitor, um, for any of you who shot with me when I was like 18, 19 years old, um, you'll know that I've had a tendency to stomp a few stabilizers in half and have even hammer-tossed a bow once that I got in trouble for. But, uh, you know, uh, Tim Strickland taught me a super super important lesson and you know he came up to me one time I was having just one of those days Patrick it was actually at an ASA tournament Um, I believe it was in Augusta Georgia and he came up to me and he said "Um, hey he said uh, regardless of what you think there's no way or nothing that you can say that's going to be able to allow you to shoot that arrow again. I just shot a bad arrow. And he said, 
the only thing that you have control of right now is those arrows that are still in your quiver. And he said, no matter what you do, what you say, there's just no way that once that arrow's left your bow that you can pull it back. It's gone. And what you need to do is you need to start looking down at your quiver and finding one in there that's going to give you the results that you want. So, you know, I, I've i reflected on that for several years. And, you know, it's gotten to the point now where, um, you know, I almost talk to myself out there. There's been times where I've, you know, had a bad arrow and, you know, you just have to look down at your quiver and say, all right, everybody, uh, Billy there didn't want to freaking shoot a 10. So he's, he's out. He's going in the bottom of the quiver for the rest of the match. So which one of you guys wants to shoot a 10? And uh, grab one. And you'll be surprised when you start looking at things with that attitude, then you're going to start being able to, to have more control over those bad shots. And... You know, so remember that the only arrows that you can ever affect the score of are the ones that are still in your quiver because everything else is history and you can't change it. Um, The other thing I guess I want to talk about in relation to this same subject is, you know, one thing that I've learned as a pro archer and as an archer that shoots with a lot of, um, a lot of the, probably the best shooters there are out there and um and when i was competing i always tried to find someone that i knew was at a level that would push me as an archer as well and when i shot with those people the one thing that you quickly realize is that everybody's human you know there's a few guys out there that can shoot for ends and ends and ends and ends and never miss um but for the most part there's going to be guys that they're going to miss. And other than Vegas, there's really no other tournaments out there where the top guys out there don't miss. And honestly, even in Vegas, I think it would be extremely rare that the top guys that are standing on that line with perfect 900s have actually made 90 perfect shots. What I found is there's probably 90% of those guys have had one or two iffy shots during the tournament, but they were lucky enough that they still hung the line for one. And for two, once they made that bad shot, they were able to recognize it fast enough to, uh, to correct themselves. And I actually had this conversation years ago with uh, Dave Cousins. Him and I were um, were shooting together, and and uh, you know there was a time where Dave and I um, did a lot of practicing together. Um, we roomed together for um, several tournaments, and you know there was a lot of similarities in both of us. And the one thing that Dave was really amazing at is he was able to really see what small flaws or mistakes he was making, whatever type of form breakdowns he might have. Sometimes he would feel that in his shot right as the shot would break. 
and he would try to correct it instantly. You know, a lot of times you see people that fling their bows all around as soon as the as soon as the arrow goes off. You know, they're trying to catch that mistake, and that's important because the difference between a good archer and a great archer is the good archer makes a mistake, but he doesn't either doesn't know what it is or he doesn't correct it fast enough. A great archer makes a mistake, but he only makes one. And he recognizes it, and he eliminates it for the next shot. You know, in archery, except in Vegas, you're allowed to make a mistake or two. The difference is don't let one mistake turn into two and three and four you know, if you're making a mistake, you need to reassess, reassess your situation, refocus on your shot routine, and most importantly, move on from what's already happened, something that you don't have control on. You know, no other archer has control on what your arrows do. You're the one that's shooting them. No other archer has control on where your arrows land. You do because you're the one that's shooting them. So what you need to do is focus on allowing the arrows that are still in the quiver be positive ones and not negative ones. You know, there was an important thing that I learned years ago from... Uh, a sports psychology coach, and this is it wasn't in the archery field, but um, you know one thing that they start to teach um, high level athletes um, in college and then also in professional sports is that athletes really need to learn that there's gonna be one or two bad calls during every type of major event, you know, especially when you're relying on a referee. And the same goes for archery when it comes to someone else calling your arrow or calling a line judge over. Um, What you need to do is just come to expect one or two calls to not go in your favor. Expect it. And what you'll find is when that call's made, you're able to just say, okay, well, there it was. I knew it was coming, so... It's happened, and uh, so be it. You know, I'm going to move on. I've got more arrows in my quiver, and and that's what's most important because you can fight back. You know, you look at all these ASA tournaments. You look at all these FIDA tournaments, and what you'll find is there's very rarely a leader for every day. That changes because people have a good day and they have a bad day. Um you know, the more you focus on letting the bad things go, then the more time you're going to have to focus on the things that are going right. So don't worry about one or two bad things that happen. And not to mention, sometimes when you just have a day like what you had, Patrick, you got to just say, well, I'm glad that's over and uh, it sucked, but I'm going to move on from it. Because, you know, I've I've lost a heck of a lot more tournaments than I've ever won. And, uh, you know, that's part of it. You know, I I often tell people 
as funny as this may sound, um, you know, we talked in one of the podcasts, you know, I talked with Jeff Hopkins and him and I were talking about, you know, one of my first shoot offs where, you know, I, I hadn't won a shoot off yet. And I had kind of told Jeff, you know, I'm getting frustrated. I keep putting myself in the position, but I'm not winning. And he just said, well, you have to learn how to win. You know, you have to learn how to win. You have to learn how, how to do that. And part of that is learning to let go of that bad arrow that you shot. But another part of it as well is almost learning how to lose. Um, if you learn how to lose properly, then what you're going to find is you're not going to have a previous performance affect one that hasn't even happened yet or one that you're right in the middle of. Um, like I said, I'm I'm proud of the fact that, you know, I've... I've put myself in contention in a lot of the shoots that I shot. I certainly didn't win them all. Um, I wouldn't even know how that feels. Um, I know that for me, I had to lose way more than I ever won. But you know what? I'm thankful for that because I really learned what winning and and uh, being a champion was, was all about. And I learned... Um, how to give respect to the other people that were there. And I learned how to appreciate those moments and really savor them. And some of the friends that I have right now in all of the foreign markets and in the international target scene, um, a lot of them are because of not only how I was when I won, but also how I was when I lost. And, you know, I think that really separates a lot of the professionals out there. There's guys that can't win and lose with the right attitude. And you know what? It's a long year. There's a lot of tournaments. After a couple tournaments are gone, hardly anybody remembers what the heck happened four or five tournaments ago or who did what. And for the most part, no one's going to really give a crap if you shot bad. So uh, most of your competitors are just going to hope that you keep doing it. So do yourself a favor. Focus on the arrows that are in your quiver. Pick your head up. Expect a couple bad calls. When you get them, shake them off. Say, there they are. Go with it. Uh, and you're going to find out that you know slumps uh, can dramatically be shortened to just a one-day event rather than an entire summer or an entire indoor season um you know keep them minimal keep them minimized you know try to to just focus on the one good thing that you're doing and continue to do it you know that's why i'm such a firm believer in scoring yourself on how you're executing and not how you're scoring because once again that was one of the things that kind of drove me away from 3d archery was because almost to this very thing the 3d tournaments that i won i can honestly say i don't think i ever shot and won a 3d tournament where i felt like i was the best shooter that weekend I know that as a 3D archer, 
Uh, well, I can think of one, but um, as a 3D archer, there were times where I was shooting very good. I felt like shooting the best of anyone I was around, but I wasn't judging correctly, so my scores weren't reflecting how I shot. And likewise, there were times where I wasn't shooting 40 perfect shots throughout the weekend, but I came out on top because it just luck happened to the one target where I misjudged it by five yards. I also bobbled at the same time, and the pin goes off, and I just stick one in the 12. So, you know, I wanted to be able to really judge myself on how I was executing. And that's why I really liked the Redding shoot. That's why I like target archery. Because how you're executing is a direct reflection of how you're shooting. Because you can see it on the paper. And if you start really focusing on judging yourself on how you're shooting on the line and how you're shooting within your little 3 by 3 box that you're standing in, then that's when you're really going to start being able to to move past some of those frustrations that you might be feeling that really don't have much meaning hardly at all when it comes to competitive archery. So I hope all you guys out there enjoyed this podcast, and uh, I hope all you guys out there continue to support everything. Um, from knock on and make sure that uh, you let our sponsors know the sponsors to knock on and the sponsors to myself Uh, make sure you give them an email let them know that the things that I'm doing for archery is good and that you appreciate that support because without those people I can guarantee you I wouldn't be able to keep doing this so thanks everybody and uh, have a good week of shooting your bows Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com